Welcome to the Binge Essentials Podcast. I'm your host, David Rocha, and joining me as always, fresh from the offices of the Broadchurch Echo, it's Romeo Mora. Romeo, what's the latest news? You know, just the usual small town gossip and the one-off murder here and there. What haunts every small English town? All right, with that in mind, we're going to be talking about Broadchurch. Broadchurch is a British crime drama television series that aired for three seasons between 2013 and 2017. The series is set in Broadchurch, a fictional English town on the coast of Dorset, and focuses on Detective Inspector Alec Hardy and Detective Sergeant Ellie Miller, played by David Tennant and Olivia Coleman. The first series focuses on the death of a local 11-year-old Danny Latimer and the impact of grief, mutual suspicion, and media attention on the town. Later seasons focused on bringing Danny's killer to justice, a case from the past returning to haunt Hardy, and the rape of a local woman at a birthday party. Other members of the cast are Jodie Whittaker, Andrew Buchan, Arthur Darville, Carolyn Pickles, Jonathan Bailey, Matthew Gravel, Charlotte Beaumont, and Adam Wilson. Joining us to talk about Broadchurch, it's Jamie Yinks. Jamie, welcome back. Thank you. I'm happy to be back, especially now we get to do one of the ones that was high on my list. Yes. Mm -hmm. So we decided to take a step away from the American projects during the Screen Actors Guild and the Writers Guild of Association strikes going on. So we thought we'd take our talents overseas and Broadchurch was a show that we landed on. And Jamie, you said just now that it's a show that was high on your list. Why is it high on your list? I really have always kind of been into British TV, particularly some of like the uh, procedurals and and dramas and, and things like that. And it's such a good show to do for this podcast, I think, because there's eight episode seasons, three seasons, you know, that's two dozen episodes, really. So it's a we're able to kind of like really talk about it, I think, and get into some of the characters without feeling too spread thin, because there there really aren't that many main characters. They do spend time throughout each season, really kind of getting to know those main and ancillary characters at a much deeper level than I think probably would be expected in a show that only had 24 episodes. It's like just approaching cheesy some of Broadchurch, but it's still within that bounds of like still very much enthralling. And for me, British TV gets away with that and US TV kind of doesn't for me for whatever reason. One of the reasons I I got into uh, Broadchurch was even on my uh, radar before it came out was that the gentleman who does the score for uh, Oliver Arnold's uh, I Love, he's an Icelandic composer. So that, that was my first cue. So I was excited more so for the soundtrack, actually. This is the first time I have watched Broadchurch, I knew of the show. Honestly, I haven't seen a lot of David Tennant at the time. Even though I'm not a Doctor Who fan, I knew of him as the Doctor. And I know Romeo is a big Doctor Who fan. Jessica Um, Jones. Yeah, Jessica Jones. Jessica Jones is probably the most exposure I've had with David Tennant before watching Broadchurch for the podcast. And honestly, I haven't made a lot of time for British television, especially the dramas. I've watched quite a few of the comedies, but the dramas are definitely a blind spot for me. And just to say spoil how I feel about the show a little bit. Now that I watch Broadchurch, it's kind of opened my horizons to giving other British dramas a chance. And I'm really looking forward to talking about this show and hearing some of your recommendations and some of our recommendations and what it could lead to in the future. And Romeo, have you watched Broadchurch before? 
we decided to do it for the podcast? For me, it was through Doctor Who. Something There was a shift because I used to air exclusively in America on the Sci-Fi Channel. And then BBC America became a thing. So it was with this Matt Smith era where it moved over to BBC America. And that kind of just opened my eyes to like, there are other quality TV shows that are just unique and nice short form. And one of them was Broadchurch because I recognized two people immediately. David Tennant as the lead. And then you had Arthur Darvell, who was congruently starring in Matt Smith's era of Doctor Who. He played Rory, Rory Williams. So I'm like, let's give this a try. And it was just so good. It's kind of hard to put into words in a sense, like the differences between British mysteries and American mysteries. Because of course you have, because everything in America is boiled down to like Law and Order, Murder, She Wrote. And then there's like just crime shows that half the crime has to be discovered, investigated and solved. And the criminal has to keep it in one hour time frame. And it's always like big scope, right? When you think about these American shows, these procedurals are always in like Chicago or you think about The Wire, how it's set in Baltimore. New York City is obviously a big place. Like it's always these big places, whereas Broadchurch, Broadchurch is a very small town with like 15,000 people. And for me, it's this fictional town in Dorset reminds me so much of like small little hamlets in the Bay of the Catherine Bay that I went quite often. It drew me in the sense because it explored how someone like Ellie Miller, who they don't deal with this sort of crime and her having to sort of navigate because in a small town like that, everyone knows everyone. Everyone's connected. Mm-hmm. And how do you put aside those personal relationships and still investigate a murder? And then also the media aspect, too, because at that time I thought I would go into journalism and that initially hooked me. And that was sort of the rise of personalities taking over and sensational and media was really beginning to get at its apex. It was just like a perfect little boiling point of everything coming together. So let's get into this first episode here. So Jamie, what was it about that first episode that got you hooked? Two things, just because I called fives on this already, and I know how big of a fan Romeo is a Doctor yeah. Who. I'm a minor Doctor Who fan, but I, immediately when I was rewatching this, I thought of the first episode. Wow, they have the best Doctor Who ever, and then they have mm-hmm. the current Doctor Who ever. They also have one of the first Doctors ever in David Bradley, and then the future Doctor. So they have four very interesting claims to to Doctor Who just with the doctors alone but I think I read there was 25 people in Broadchurch that were also in Doctor Who well here's the thing too something for like Doctor Who fans so the creator of Broadchurch when he got the offer to take over after Stephen Moffat his first and only pick was really Jodie Whittaker because they worked together in Broadchurch he told her audition because he knew they were going to have a female doctor yeah um, and Olivia Coleman have kind of blown up. Olivia Coleman more so like globally, but she was in mm-hmm. The Night Manager, which was just a limited series that I think it was like a congruent, I guess it was AMC and- Yes, it was. But it, I think it may have been like mm-hmm. ITV or, you know, BBC Two or something. It was like a joint. I like Tom Hiddleston a lot and the two of them were like the main people. And I, I loved how, so it was cool seeing Hugh Laurie play like a villain and like a really good villain and hearing him in his like actual accent and not that like perfect American 
American accent he has. I kind of thought of just having known Olivia Coleman over the years as more of a comedian. I kind of always thought of her as like the female version of like Bob Odenkirk or even like Brian Cranston. They started out comedic actors and like they've become like drama, uh, drama actors, which is pretty cool. Yeah, the, this is the first thing I ever saw. And I thought, holy crap, she's amazing. We don't get much British television unless you subscribe to a particular streaming service that will import a lot of their shows. So for me, like it was like a wonderful introduction to her acting capability. And she blew me away. Like she is just mesmerizing. Like going back to that first episode, the range of emotion of her thing. She's getting that promotion to fighting out. She lost it out to great. Now I have to work with this asshole who took my job to realize he's like, oh shit, there's a murder for the first time. Trying to navigate them and realizing, oh, it's my son's best friend. And that roller coaster and that one episode of Lone was just amazing to watch. How about the way they both react to it, right? Like when Hardy first shows up, he's just kind of like, oh God, no, not again. He probably thought he was going to be taking a job that was going to be a much quieter job in a location that he wasn't too thrilled to be in. He really begrudgingly hates being there, but he basically believes he's there because of penance for what happened at Sandbrook. And Olivia Coleman arrives and she's just like, oh God, oh no, no, this is terrible. And she recognizes Danny right away. And the range of the motions she goes through is really heartbreaking. And right away, you can tell that if she had Hardy's job, she would have been immediately unqualified for it. As we see throughout the season, she makes a lot of mistakes that Hardy calls her out on, that she needs to be less sympathetic, that she needs to stop reassuring potential suspects. And it's hard for her because she knows everybody. This is a small location. Everybody knows each other. It's hard not to feel connected or sympathetic or anything that can hurt the case. It's hard to avoid that. Well, it makes for a nice dynamic throughout the season between her and Hardy. So yeah, the first episode really does a great job setting up what to expect throughout the season with their partnership. And the ensemble is pretty good. I think they did a really good job introducing the characters. I really like that scene with Mark, how he's walking to work and he's going through the town. It's like this one shot and he's saying hi to some of the townspeople and just an ordinary day for him without realizing how his whole world is about to crumble beneath him. So you mentioned the score and the score really does help set the tone for the series, especially when we see the opening scene, we see Danny looking over from the cliffside. I like the cinematography as well. It's really beautiful. Really helps distinguish it separately from a lot of other shows that you've seen in the past, including in American shows. The editing is really good too because you wonder at first what even is going on? Like you see Danny, you see that he's bleeding and and so you think that he's actually jumping off from this cliff, but as you come to find out later on, he was actually dumped onto the beach later by someone else and really sets up something interesting here. And the show throughout the series they do a lot of crafty editing techniques to kind of piece this story together and piece the crimes together and, and make you ask questions and make you suspicious of so many characters. They do such an amazing job with that. That's like the bread and butter of the entire series. That's a part of that cheesy but likable aspect where I love Oliver Arnold's style, but like it's over dramatic, but it works. You know what I mean? And like when towards the end of each episode, when they're kind of like showing you who it may be, right? And they go back and forth between like the five, six, seven suspects. These are all people who aren't being honest with the police for some reason or another. So like mm -hmm. they do a good job at following the typical tropes, the typical like format, but still really making it new and inventive. And that's the thing I thought of right away when I first saw the first couple episodes was this was a very unique show that I had never seen anything like it since. But is there a moment that you think you can pinpoint that made you committed to the show for the long haul? Probably like your 
you're saying, that first episode, just the first couple scenes of the first episode were very compelling. Mm -hmm. The more I got into it, the more I was seeing other British actors from other series that I like. So that also kept me kind of really glued in. I think maybe I had a leg up over most American viewers just because of the amount of British TV I enjoy. So that was pretty cool. Let's go ahead and get to some of these characters. Jamie, who do you want to start with? I guess if we're going to talk main characters, I think there's probably four main, main characters, and that would be the detectives, David Tennant, Olivia Coleman, and then Jodie Whittaker and her husband, Mark Latimer, who is played by uh, Andrew Buchan. Those four, I would say, are they probably would have the most screen time, if I had to guess. You really get a, a good backdrop of those stories, whereas the other people are a little bit more shallow. So I think those four, starting with any of them, might as well start with, I guess, top bill. That would probably be at this time would have been David Tennant. I thought the character was great. I mean, like it, it is that trope of one case that got away from him, kind of, you know, like coming back mm-hmm. to it. It doesn't even fucking matter when it's a when it's a good actor. <laughs> and you know what I mean? Like when it's a great actor, it's a great production. There's beautiful music. Like, give me all that fucking cheese. I don't care. Like, that's cool. Yeah. And I like his Scottish accent. I think it adds another layer to his character that he's like, like he doesn't fit in to Broadchurch. Foreigner. Yep. And I love the way he talked to Miller sometimes. I did like his brashness. I did like that he was not the most likable person, but I also like that he demonstrated how his outlook on people, how he's able to read people and still, you know, he's a good cop too. Like there's nothing really, I would say, crooked about him. And he sees everything with such a clear, he sees everything clearly. You know, he, does, he doesn't allow himself to get caught up in the moment or blinded by anything necessarily. There was one thing I texted Romeo when I was watching the first season. I was saying that I like how he's like, he's basically on death's front door and he's like trying to solve this case. Yeah. <laughs> like whipping eyes out of his arms. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very uh, film noir type trope. The That's private true. investigator on his, literally on his deathbed about to name the killer. It's so good. I also think that uh, I like the character development of Hardy and Ellie Miller. Like Miller made him a much better detective because she humanized his thought process Mm -hmm. and she had to keep you know, reminding him, no, 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 this is fucked up. This is person has been through, especially the series three, been through something horrific. You have to be soft. And like that made him a better detective. But it also you know, his influence and his like brashness and like get the shit done as ethically as possible. That really rubbed off on Olivia Coleman and made her a much better detective. And then you see in series three how well they work together. Mm-hmm. So they, they definitely were like kind of completing the perfect detective. You're right about that. They really did fill each other's holes very well as the series went on. That's a really good point. Well, well, you're sounding like Barrister Bishop. They're making accusations. Um, <laughs> no, I will say you're right, because if you look at Ellie in, in like series three, the way she treats the new detective was the same way he Hardy treated her in series one, especially with that yeah. massive screw up. Because the detective's father was actually a suspect mm-hmm. in that third it, investigation. That bugged me a little bit because, like, clearly she was, like, very comfortable calling out, like, or just starting issues with her superiors. And pardon me, he's like, that's cool. Like, I like this kind of people. But then, like, <laughs> he ends up doing all these, like, great things, you know, like, huge breakthroughs in the case. And then yet fucking doesn't get, or I guess was trying to hide it, maybe, that, mm-hmm. like, her dad being a suspect should have been mentioned. But also, like, who the fuck wouldn't have known that? 
that? Isn't this a small town? <laughs> like, <laughs> well, I think he owns that shop and his daughter's a cop in that town. Like I, that, that's the one thing I was like, eh. oh, so I think and, they, and third... they've been living there for 12 years. Right. So this, yeah. it's not like, so yeah, they just moved there. I remember correctly. I thought it was an adjacent town where the yeah, it, it is. That's the other thing that bugged me. It was like, it kind of felt like Friday Night Lights for the first three seasons. <laughs> there is no East Dillon. There's just this small town Dillon, right? And then all of a sudden now they're rewriting it. And now there's this larger metropolitan area that has like kind <laughs> of fucking tracks, you know, like. Just right. to be fair, they redistricted to create East Dillon. <laughs> <laughs> I love Friday Night Lights, as you all know. So that was the only kind of like, eh, for me. Like I said, it's just so much more palatable and like easier to forgive cheesiness when it's British or Aussie or even Swedish TV, stuff like that. Like I can forgive it mm-hmm. a lot easier than I would, I think, if it was an American accent. I don't know why. <laughs> I mean, we have our moments. Like watch any Law & Order episode, like more recent ones. It can get pretty up there. I mean, there was a whole episode based on the billionaire that died mysteriously in the cell. I can't think of his name. Unless you're talking about Epstein, he wasn't a billionaire. Yeah, Epstein. There was, I think it was an, also a series arc based on Epstein. We get some of that too, but I feel like here, I don't see it as cheesy. I just see it. It didn't take me out. Like some of those things. They say it's a small place, but 15,000 people is still a lot of people. When I think small, I think of where I grew up. That was a town of like 4,000, 5,000 people. The way it's described, I liken it of one of two places. Either Half Moon Bay on the um, West Coast, a small coastal town, or Martha's Vineyard. Because he also talked about the summer tourism and then the quiet season of the winter seasons, where it's kind of small and desolate. And that's where the town really comes together. It's kind of one of the themes of the first season, right, is how the murder is going to affect the town financially, how uh-huh. businesses and hotels, you know, they're going to struggle because they're not getting those tourist dollars. It's kind of interesting that they spend a little time on that, but that's because, you know, they had Becca, who was, who was a little bit more uh, more of a minor character on the show. And so uh-huh. obviously being the hotel owner and when everybody's staying there, it makes sense that they would want to explore that. And Hardy, uh, Hardy actually lived at the Trader's Hotel for a little while before getting his own place. And, you know, it kind of reminds me of Raylan Gibbons and Justified where he goes back to Kentucky but he's not actually living in a home. He's staying in a hotel because it's supposed to be temporary right? You don't want to actually stay. This is just temporary. <laughs> but for Hardy it was like it ended up being permanent much to his surprise. So he got his nice little home next to the the river or ocean or whatever that was. I, I thought that was a re- really nice place. What I also liked about Hardy in season two is that he actually did address his health and he ended up getting a peacemaker. And after getting that peacemaker like he was telling Lee Ash he felt like reborn, you know, it's like, I'm feeling good. I'm ready to get you arrested. You know, I'm ready to solve this case. You're all going down for it. You know, it was kind of cool to see him be like re-energized, you know, instead of just being like down in the dumps like he was like most of that season one and series three, how he instead of like leaving Broadchurch, he's still there. He still kept his job. And we, I mean, we're like years later since the Danny Latimer case. We're three years later, actually. And he's still very much in love with his job and, and can convinced Ellie to come back. Exactly. Convince Ellie to come back. Convince his daughter to stay with him. 
That's a good scene, too, when, when he saw the rape case in Series 3. She says how proud she is of him, and then she says it again and gives him a hug. And, like, you can see, like, his he's such a good actor, David Tennant, that, like, he still has that scowl on his face, and then it slowly kind of dissolves, and, like, he embraces her back. He's, like, legitimately changed. I always felt that him revisiting the case that sort of got away from him kind of felt it should have been the final story. I wanted him to grow, like, in Season 3, Season 2, still have his challenges that he faced with his health but then being in top form from the beginning when it comes back to him like he goes back to that case because i feel like that would have been a proper way to sort of close out his story that's definitely the case for him as a character but i think it was kind of necessary to squeeze out three series of this show (laughs) if they hadn't done that in season two because Mm -hmm. that so integral to half of the story plot, right? So I see what you're saying. Yeah, like in a conventional way, I think it would have been better to tie up his character that way. But I kind of like the way they did it, especially because I really enjoyed all the series, but two was one of my favorites. Two is one of your favorites, mm-hmm. okay. One probably would be my favorite just because it was so unique, you know, but like mm-hmm. having rewatched it a, a bunch of times and looking back, like it's seeing how things develop. I really like Mark Latimer's character and in season two is where like his like best acting, I think, came. <laughs> And then I really didn't like the route they took him on series three. I liked what happened, but I didn't like how he was just kind of like barely sharing scenes with other major characters. And mm-hmm. I think he's one of the stronger actors in the first two series. So like that kind of bugged me a little bit, but they're all really good. But I, I would probably say maybe in order one, two, three. I kind of felt like with Mark Latimer's character, maybe combine that grief in season two because I didn't like they brought back Tom. Ellie's husband because it just Joe, felt like Joe. so anticlimactic like why are we doing here like you're making me trying to feel sorry for this asshole who did this horrible thing and then you're expecting Mark to sort of just kind of forgive him and move on for me that's like the only bad point in season three I think you are completely misreading those scenes me too I think that was like some of the best part of the whole series that scene where he finally meets up out in that dock somewhere yeah, yeah. And I don't I don't think they were trying to frame it as like we should be feeling sorry for Joe Miller or Mark should forgive Joe. Here's a person who can't overcome the loss of his son because the man who did it is out there. And, and, he, and one of his best friends did it. Yeah, yeah. And he confronted him. He just needed to hear it. He needed to hear the full explanation because if there's one thing that was true about the whole thing is that Mark felt like he should have been there to stop it. We know proximity wise he Mm -hmm. was nearby the murder he walked by the window and just didn't think of anything of it yeah and joe clears up that no he was long dead by the time i saw your car out there and he was sharing that information knowing that he could have been killed showed that joe does have a morsel of humanity i didn't feel bad from any way like for me i thought it was very humane for both people because mark is sitting here having a fucking conversation with the guy who strangled his son to death and hide it right you know and but mark Mark knows that he can't do what he thought he could and kill him. He, that's just not him. That would ruin mm-hmm. his life. And, you know, at the same point, he's almost desperate to know what happened. And he realizes the only way I'm ever going to know and have any peace mm-hmm. is not if he's punished, but if I have closure and information that I don't know yet. Like a restorative justice perspective, I'm like, fuck yeah, that worked out well for everyone. But like, <laughs> right. and, and Joe is miserable, you know, don't yeah. forget. He, hates his job he hates everything that you know and, and so it's not really you know making it look good for him especially because well, they 
only really show him like being followed for this couple episodes and then he's working at this huge huge plant seemingly as like a security guard or something yeah he's not like robert durst who still has like a trust fund and <laughs> even though yeah, he clearly yeah. murdered people and kept getting away with it <laughs> he's scraping so- by yeah, I think my argument is with Joe, that conversation could have happened at the end of series two when they collectively kidnapped him and told him never come back. Maybe it might be too soon after the verdict or whatnot. I don't know. Like, it just seemed like Mark's storyline just seems so out of place. And for me, like pacing wise, it kind of hindered the momentum of the investigation because had Beth integrated into the investigation because she's now working for Sarah, who helps the victims of sexual crimes. She was naturally weaved into that narrative where I felt like the odd person out that season was Mark. Me too. And that that's why I dislike the third season in that way is like one of my favorite characters is like being used in a I don't know like a very telegraphed way almost that was very much not the case he was a suspect right you know and then he's cheating on his wife like there's all kinds of other issues going on that really make him a very complex character and then it was the other way around in series two it was Beth Latimer Jodie Whittaker's character who was so couldn't give it up and then finally she's realizing she needs to accept it and she takes this incredible role as a social worker right but that was the other thing for me like a town of 15,000 people and they have their own like nonprofit organization dedicated solely to rape victims. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, I mean, the town I live in is 15,000, but you know, there are towns next to me that are 1520 and I'm two miles from a million and a half people in Philadelphia. Yeah, I had to think about that. I was like, wait, is that base of operations in Broadchurch? And it was. Yeah, I, I remember it's now. It was. I mean, it's Wessex. Yeah. It's a fictional, it's a fictional county. Yeah. yeah. I don't think they ever mentioned that in series one and two. I may be wrong, but rewatching this time, I only picked up on it again in the third series. The very like opening sequence, they're talking about why they're somewhere that is in Broadchurch and why they're investigating things that aren't in Broadchurch. Mark is a good example of somebody who, you know, these little like poor decisions you make in life and how you think they're not going to come back and bite you. Yeah. <laughs> and and they do. He's the kind of person I strive to not be. Mm-hmm. I always try to like not make stupid decisions, even even small stupid decisions. because I'm always afraid like that's somehow going to get turned on me later. Not to the extent of like you're a suspect in a murder case, of course, but just like anything that could like get me, I don't know, fired from my job or in trouble with my wife or you know, just anything right. like that. It's like be smart, think smart, you know, and something as simple as like, oh, he got upset one day and he did hit Danny. He probably felt awful for that. It's very possible he apologized a million times for that. But that moment isolated his relationship between him and his son and Uh set up this whole side relationship that his son had by sneaking out and hanging out with Joe Miller. You know, I think all his poor decisions, that's like the weight on his shoulders and where he puts him in the state where he is. Even small actions can have the biggest consequences. It's unfortunate that it wasn't just the affair. It was also the hitting your child. It was also the just the lying to the police because he doesn't want to admit what he was doing. It, it was just like his poor decision after poor decision. It's just one of those things where it's like, bro, the truth will set you free. <laughs> like, like, just be just be honest from the start. Well, here's the problem too, because who was in the interview? <laughs> 
Ellie. Yeah, Ellie, right. Ellie right. is Beth's best friend. Yeah, yeah. How does she not tell Beth? And I think that's what I love about the series, uh, especially for series one, was the conflict of interest. How did Ellie continue to investigate this yeah. world is beyond me. Well, I think conflict of interest is, would probably be a little different here than in the UK. But like on that note, I really like that she still did her fucking job after like, like mm-hmm. how many people could withstand that humiliation where like she was supposed to be promoted. She didn't get promoted. But on top of that, the person they're searching for is her husband. And like that mm-hmm. would usually probably just ruin anyone, even if they weren't a cop. But then mm-hmm. the fact that she like still is a cop doesn't give up. She's like the strong hero of the series. And I felt that to be like really important. And for that reason, it makes sense kind of how series three was significantly different. And if it means that then having Mark's kind of storyline be a little weird, I'm okay with it because I, I feel like Olivia Coleman, you know, as Ellie Miller had the biggest like renaissance, you know, of yeah. the characters. But those confident interests came to a head during the trial. Because in series one, I was so enthralled with the investigation and all the twists and turns. And then to have it actually be completely deconstructed for the jury and manipulated to get Joe off a non-guilty, not necessarily not guilty, but they couldn't come to unanimous decision was just insane. There's interviews with Tennant and Coleman. They even said, they're like, oh, wow, you know, you think about these actions that they made in season one and how it how those were being brought back into season two to be used against them and in the court case it's like they weren't even thinking about that when they were acting it out you know it is a a bit of a clever writing to build up the drama help the story get to the point where it needed to get towards the series end series two was criticized for the court drama saying that it felt a little too unrealistic my only counter argument to that at least as as an american i was thinking this happens in america quite often yeah (laughs) Yeah. we have a unique relationship with the truth and (laughs) the evidence you can present because it seems like and this is me like only watching a few episodes of law and order uk i thought the rules in court and and, um, establishing theories and evidence well i thought it was a little bit more stricter than our court system i could be wrong like the stuff that was thrown out there i felt like was watching episode of maury i was waiting (laughs) for the lie detector results to come on any moment well the one thing they couldn't have done is enter that new evidence without it being in discovery i know that's the case for the u.s and the uk so that part definitely was not realistic i mean i guess they presented enough multiple theories but the thing that bugged me so much was like party and miller were having an affair and that's why she pinned it on her husband and i'm just looking at joe and i'm like not only are you destroying the mother of your of your child but then you're having your child lie for you on the stand i think tom just did it he, but you know it, it took that for ellie to like come out and take charge of her life again mm-hmm. she kind of banished herself from broad church almost in the same way hardy banished himself from sandbrook you know as, as like penance for like for what happened to mm-hmm. danny and, and being joe uh, but it took that moment like that's one of the best scenes of the whole series is her just ripping into tom for lying under oath and you're just like you're moving back in with me yeah in front of everybody <laughs> it's like you're moving back into me that's it no questions asked and he's just like okay more <laughs> like yes yes that's how you do it one thing that i find really interesting and i learned this not when i was watching it but like one of the rewatches olivia coleman was the only actor in the entire series 
to accidentally actually know who the killer was. Oh, really? I didn't what? Know that. She had to keep That's it quiet. Amazing. But to think about how fucking good she reacted to things, even still with that knowledge, I'm like, hell yeah. So I had that tidbit followed away. So when I rewatched it, I really focused on that aspect, like how different the reactions could be. And you couldn't tell one because she's that good of an mm, actor. She had me fooled. She was great. Yeah, that's the other thing. I need to watch, rewatch series one just to see if there's anything that Joe was kind of giving away that could make him a suspect because I was fooled. I, I did not consider him he, a suspect. I, thing, Joe had a lot of screen time and they kept showing him... As a supporting husband, the stay-at-home dad, he was the mm-hmm. one giving aid. So they did a really good job at not really foreshadowing it too much. Mm-hmm. But he had a lot of airtime. It's just you didn't think, I don't know, you just thought he was ancillary, I guess. Because looking back, I didn't notice anything. It just completely just threw me by surprise when Hardy was tracking the phone and he found Joe. Because I honestly thought the son did it, especially when he admitted that he didn't really like Danny. <laughs> He said, I hate him. <laughs> yeah. And then to be Joe was just like, holy shit. But it was kind of there from the beginning because she took sleeping pills and she overslept for her first day. I will say this. She is the MVP of every investigation. She's the one who found the links, especially during the um, Sambor case that Claire was involved from the beginning. Well, you need fresh eyes, right? She does add a different perspective in comparison to Hardy that really helped get to the bottom of it. And, you know, Hardy kept pushing her to, you know, be like, go see Claire, go get something out of Claire because, you know, they were kind of becoming a little buddy buddy and yeah there's just that element that really makes it work you know and it's like was it gender dynamics right you know male cop female cop and you know they work together they have different perspectives they have different upbringings and different approaches to things those type of things really do matter ellie would have never solved danny's case without hardy and hardy never would have solved sandbrook's case without ellie even both of them like when they meet the first time he just calls him miller miller and Mila. Like, my name you know, my name's ellie and like for him he's like well why like that's fucking stupid like he, he's like <laughs> over rational right you know like and then you know it slowly starts to to wind down and he does call her ellie eventually yeah that is interesting we haven't spent too much time on Beth Latimer. What are your thoughts on Beth? Oh, she was great. I mean, Jodie Whittaker is a phenomenal actor. I like the character, too. I liked her character development, especially in Series 3, when she's like doing probably the most noble, most difficult, and underappreciated, underpaid jobs in the world as being a social worker after everything that happened to her. And like she's like the hero, I think. She didn't lose sight of Danny. She didn't lose sight of her own life. She fought it, fought it, fought it. It. And then you see between series two and three, which I think it actually is supposed to be three years, they say. Yeah, three uh, years from the murder. Yeah. yeah, she's she was great. I mean, I kind of think series three is more about her than anyone. I did like that. She's never a suspect. Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting. I mean, like there are three never suspects. And that's pretty much mm-hmm. the detectives and Beth Latimer. So she was a safe character in that way. She was complex, too. You know, even her relationship with Mark was complex. I thought she was a very strong performance. She brought a lot of the really good dialogue scenes between other characters. So for mm-hmm. that, I was very appreciative. Yeah, I, I thought the performance was great. I thought the character was was really interesting and just seeing her how she's dealing with the grief of the loss of her child and having to make the tough decision of keeping the baby even though she's in a marriage that she feels like is falling apart. If there's anything I wasn't thrilled about with Beth was how she was treating Ellie in season two yeah. because she was so mean to her and it's just like gosh like what happened wasn't ellie's fault you know and 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 i know it kind of ties in with ellie when she's interviewing susan wright in season one 
Mm-hmm. And Susan Wright is connected to murders that happen in her family or something like that. Right. Right? that. Her husband killed someone. Remember, she asked her, how didn't you know? Well, that was foreshadow, right? For later, what yeah. it's like, how could you not know that Joe did it? I agree. Like, that was the only hint that Joe was the killer. And the way that Ellie justified his question, because he was an EMT, he used to visit crime scenes. And this is the murder of some that was his son's best friend. So him being naturally curious, he wouldn't really raise any alarm bells in Ellie. Or in Hardy and, for that matter, right? And as they talked about, there were no previous inclinations for his pedophilia. So for Ellie, she was blindsided. Now, coming from Beth's perspective is how do you not know what's going under your own roof and i can understand that rage and for beth you you can ask the same question to her it's like how did you not know that danny was sneaking out she was looking for answers like any grieving person would and Mm -hmm. and she was at that anger point and you know that the easiest person target for that is her best friend whose husband did this and she didn't see it coming as a detective but like Mm -hmm. yeah really shitty but like that showed the resolve and the type of fortitude that ellie has right to understand that it's not about her to understand that she's just upset that her son died and like and she kept trying and kept trying right like that was necessary i think for miller's development too yeah yeah her water breaks and yeah. miller stays with her throughout that entire experience that was a big deal and then um, she still says to leave and their family's like really and then like after that it became a little bit easier i think the healing came when they all kidnapped joe <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and ellie basically told them that if he, if he ever came back she will personally kill him i'm like okay (laughs) you know the vicar's right there fucking next to him he's like in on it like a ringleader i'm like hell yeah finally we get to see a vicar do some cool shit in a british tv show (laughs) actually (laughs) grand chester's pretty cool which is you know another one i'd recommend but yeah yeah so uh that that was cool that's kind of a curveball and i kind of liked how paul was his first name coats Coates. Yeah, Reverend Coates. He's a good actor. I felt like he was underutilized. And then in series three, it was a little bit more about him. And then they even kind of make, well, Tennant makes the joke, well, his character, he says, had I known you were this good, I would I would have come all along in, in his last you know, message to the congregation. <laughs> but my question is, is he like leaving the church he's, or is he going no, somewhere? He's, he's going to a different parish. As he mentioned is they only go to the church when there's a tragedy, when they're in need of something. But when everything is good, no one needs him. And for him, it's like, what is my purpose? Even in season three, he goes to Beth and says, hey, like there's a victim, Trish. And Beth said, oh, yeah, I did talk to Trish because she's not religious. She doesn't see any point of you talking to her. And he's like, yeah, and that's the point. No one needs me. And then he also brings it back and he's also talking to Maggie where I'm talking like before the service or the day before the service, like, do you have your last your last sermon ready and he goes yeah for the five to seven people that show up <laughs> and he says and he, she even called her out he's like you don't come anymore <laughs> yeah Latimer's Miller yeah he's like I, I can understand his frustration and you sort of see that in series two the only person he's constantly seen or wants to talk to him is Joe and then in Mark in series three <laughs> I like Paul a lot actually I liked his backstory he used to be an alcoholic and recovered from that he was religious but he also still felt a little unconventional in mm-hmm. terms 
terms of like your usual reverend. So you're able to at least connect to him a little bit more. Season two, I did like his arc because he went to Joe Miller because he thought he was and repent, act, you know, and actually face time for the crime he committed. Yeah, yeah. And I liked when Paul realized, oh, that's not what's happening here. He completely distanced himself and didn't okay. want anything to do with Joe after that. Like every reminds he, me he of that. that though. He didn't just ghost right He told him specifically. Yeah. It reminds me of that scene in The Sopranos when Dr. Malfi tells Tony Soprano, I think you're just conning me this entire damn time. Mm. <laughs> like, I got that vibe. I'm like, oh, I see what you're doing there. <laughs> so there was a joke um, with one of the priests who was assigned to our church at one point where he talked about how during confession, he would have his quote unquote repeat offenders. Where at some point he's like, I have to literally sit down with them like, you can't commit the same sin and for me to forgive you every Friday for you to do the same thing over again. That's what it reminds me of because you have these people who are looking for excuses or absolution for behaviors they're going to continue doing. It's like instead of finding a way to break that behavior, they're doing band-aids. If I'm forgiven, I'm absolved of it, I'm not going to hell. Well, no, you can't keep doing the same shit over and over again and expect something good to happen afterwards. It reminds me of that scene in A League of Their Own, the movie, when Madonna goes into the confessional booth. She comes out and like the priest is all like sweating. He opens the door to see who it was. (laughs) (laughs) Well, since we talked about Paul already, let's go ahead, Jamie. Are there any other supporting characters that you want to touch on? Yeah, someone who really was only in the first series. The actor's name is Vicki McClure. She played the reporter, Karen, for like a bigger newspaper. She, while this first series came out, the second series was being filmed while she was also just starting Line of Duty, which is the third best police procedural ever made. And she's amazing in that. So I was concurrently watching both shows. When I saw she didn't return for series two, it kind of made sense to me. But I thought she was great in the little that we saw her. I, I like her a lot. She's very high quality actor at this point in her career, too. So I would have liked to have her around a little more, especially like with how it could have played off with Maggie and like the differences in they're wanting to report certain things and what is considered news, what isn't, what's considered ethical. I just thought it had the potential to be a bigger character. They sort of did kind of do that with Caroline in series three. I mean, this was the apex of like larger conglomerates buying newspapers and sensationalizing stuff. Caroline did represent sensationalism. And when Maggie points out, I think it's like the advertisement and the congruent stories are like, here's this serious story about rape. And then you're having scantily clad women advertise on this side. I understood that frustration. <laughs> it is to the point where news in general is all about opinion, sensationalism, and tabloid. Because she even makes the point of Oliver or Ollie actually went to go write for tabloids, which he was more suited for tabloids than actual yeah. news reporting. I mean, he got he he caused a man to kill himself. Irresponsible journalism. But I understood that frustration because it is to the point where it's like, what's the point of these newspapers saying that they're reporting local stories when you're not physically there? Why am I bothering subscribing when I know like half the news stories are written by people that may not be on the ground to report stuff that's actually happening? It was an interesting B-plot through the series, the journalism of it all 
all. I guess it fits, right? I mean, if you're going to expand the story in the way that they were doing, in a way, it does make sense. I wasn't really into that story in season three at all. I felt like it was very shoehorned in because I really do feel like you could have just not had Maggie in series three and it wouldn't have affected the story no, at it all. Wouldn't yeah, I agree with that. Say what you will about Maggie. She is kind of an institution within Broadchurch. Sure. Because she ran the Broadchurch Echo for so long. Yeah, she's which, a blogger. If it was done today, instead of a YouTube, she would have said TikTok or <laughs> Twitter. TikTok, yeah, maybe. I hate to give Caroline some points here, but she's kind of right. Print media is expensive to produce. And it is now gatekept. So if you really want strong reporting, you either have to be a roaming journalist and have a vlog or write for other magazines or you write books. That's true. What she did. She wrote a book. That was kind of glossed over, though. They, 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 didn't, they didn't do too much I, which, with that. And that's what's sort of arguing. Like, that would have been an interesting storyline. Instead of him trying to find Joe, Mark sort of navigating that is finding a way to sort of honor his son in a way, sort of working on his emotions. He does, though, eventually. And he had that, like, daydream where he was a 15-year-old and he was playing video games with him and talking to him about, like, Maybe a dance coming up. No, I, I, no, I think it was his exams. Exam. Was worried, it was worried about the exams. And he says, no matter, as long as you do your best, that's all that matters. So are there any other characters, uh, minor characters you want to touch on? I like Nige, too. Nige was cool. Nige is such a dumbass, man. Well, he, he is. He was like, <laughs> he is. For it to be early on. Like, you know what I mean? Like, he was like, yeah. of course it's going to be this douchebag. He has this ability to, like, really manipulate his mom. Obviously awful to him. But, like, and then his mom says something awful about, like, oh, you have your dad in you or something like that. So yeah. you start to wonder, like, is this guy really capable of something like that? They definitely did a good job using him as like a sort of a red herring, pointing the uh, crossbow at the dog. Yeah, um, that was he, weird. Yeah, yeah. He's like, he's just one of those guys who just does weird things. <laughs> but you're like, oh, it's just old Nige. He's harmless. But it's like, yeah, I mean, he's kind of a weird guy, right? <laughs> wasn't he pointing the crossbow at the dog alone at yes. once, too? Yes. Like, he wasn't to, like, fucking intimidate his mom. It was just because what? <laughs> When he was bored? I don't know. At one point, Susan Wright, she thought she saw Nigel on the beach when it really was Joe Miller. That, to me, she felt sure about. Well, she said it was definitely him, yeah. I kind of took it as she may not have known, and that was, like, her last way of getting back at him for telling Mm -hmm. her to leave, basically. I I don't know. But that's pretty fucking scornful, especially Mm -hmm. for her mother. But, But yeah, Nigel, she kind of took a backseat as the series went on. There's really no other point for him, but he was still there. There was another character Lee Ashworth, James D'Arcy's character, I liked a lot. I like Lee Ashworth as well. I, I found him very intimidating. He kind of towered over David Tennant a little bit, you know? <laughs> just like, yeah, I don't want to mess with this guy. This guy's scary. He's like a good-looking, I don't know, more normalized version of Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> <laughs> he kind of reminds me of that so much. But, like, normal. Like, nothing off about his face. <laughs> right. <laughs> Between Lee, Claire, and Ricky, I kind of assumed that everybody was guilty between all three of them. It was just a matter of how does it all piece together to make this crime make any sense? And I liked watching that unfold as the season went on in season two. So when we finally got 
the scene where uh, how it all happened, I thought it was pretty good because, yeah, it was just another one of those situations where Claire was just like constantly lying to Hardy. Lee was being a total bastard too, coming back from France. And you're like, why is this guy even back? And, you know, he's basically looking for Claire, gets Claire, and then their relationship kind of falls apart. And you think it's because, I mean, really, you think it's because of Lee, but it's actually because of some of Claire's decisions. She makes him smother Pippa. She steals the necklace. She was uh, bad news for sure. I don't know. It's hard for me to feel bad for Lee exactly, but he definitely put himself out there in a situation that he really shouldn't have. And then, yeah, Ricky just being a drunk idiot. And I feel bad for Ricky in the sense that his daughter died in the process of his absolutely poor decision that had nothing to do with his daughter. Out of the three, I like Lee's character the most. He was mysterious, but then like you would get flashes of, oh, okay, this guy isn't what I thought. And then you'd get a little little nudge of, okay, maybe he is. And it, it was a perfect kind of a dance for figuring out that character. Any other supporting characters before we move on? I'll ask your thought on the characters in season two. Do you have any thoughts on the barristers in season two? The younger one who like at first was like, oh, this is unethical. And then by the end of it, she's like cheering for fucking people over basically. And like, <laughs> yeah, you just see her just like get warped by. And, and the odd thing is, and then her superior is this very successful defense attorney with a son in prison. And, and that whole landscape I thought was interesting, but it definitely fell flat. Like it gave her some definition of the character, but they didn't extend it past that enough. But yeah, both of them were likable and they played their role well. It was a little disappointing that we didn't get to see anything wrapping things up for them. Like the change in Abby was interesting because at the beginning, she's just there because she's the court appointed barrister. So Joe can enter his guilty plea, shocking the hell out of her when he says, nope, I didn't do it. Then we see her like, okay, how do we defend him? And then when they're prepping Joe to get on the stand to give his own evidence to why he did not commit the crime he slips up multiple times and abby after they leave abby goes to jocelyn and she's like i think he actually did it he doesn't go stop it do not say that again as of now we do not know for certain he did it and i'm like god damn <laughs> they're trying to convince themselves that he did not do it when they both know he did and they have to somehow defend him with a clear conscience and then abby just becomes almost machiavellian and trying to find things to screw over the prosecution yeah they had that rivalry too between yeah like and then mentee you know and, and then ben um who is the junior barrister for uh sharon bishop i'm sorry i'm, I'm confusing the two characters it's sharon bishop is the lead of counsel yeah yeah for Abby. jocelyn is the one seeking justice for Daniel. yeah yeah, and I think I know where you're going with this when Ben tells Abby that he thinks she's a horrible person uh, <laughs> and, and it kind of catches her off guard. Because you went from like episode two to thinking to knowing he's guilty to like, oh, my God, we're going to get him off <laughs> this charge. I'm like, oh, the thrill of victory, man. That's Which, what it does to um, people. For Phoebe Waller-Bridge, she played the title character of Fleabag. Does despicable things, but we still liked her. <laughs> and here we're just like, ma'am, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah, it becomes like she's been like radicalized. Oh, no, I think in the end, I think it's still easy to say, like like Jamie just said, it's they weren't the strongest characters. But in terms of like the court proceedings, it was like watching all the greatest hits of a true crime documentary. <laughs> it had all of it and even had me like, <gasps> you know, right. Like, what? It got me pretty good. It got me hooked, you know, and the complaints that it felt unrealistic. I understand. 
I understand where those people are coming from. But with the world building they did and how it all connected from season one and what they did with that, it sold me enough. It was all good enough for me. So I think, uh, you know, and we didn't really touch on some of the supporting characters in series three. I just want to briefly say that I think Ian is a dumbass. I love their daughter because I like how she's tough, man. She's, I like when she confronts her dad and why'd you take the computer? And he's like, what are you talking about? It's like, dude, I know you have the key. I know you snuck in and I know you grabbed the computer. Put it in my locker. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, dude, dad, do I have to act like the parent here? <laughs> yes. Stop bullshitting here. The one thing that bugged me in series three had the very last episode is when like that got all cleared up. They're like, you know, maybe this is a, you know, a daft idea, but, you know, I was thinking of picking up some takeout, you know, maybe Chinese, like we used to order. And like, they're like, okay, yeah. And like, they're all kind of like, this guy's a fucking awful human being. He was fucking spying on her and her child through her computer and like is was getting divorced from her for very good reason. To that part, I was kind of like, ah, because she had gone through all this awful experience and like still her. And then she's just going to go back to the guy she already left before the incident. Like, I don't know. That was a little weird. Oh, I was just going to say one more thing about season three. I think it's fair to just kind of bring up Trish real quick. I thought the performance was really well done by Julie Hesman Hall. Half? I'm not sure. But yeah, you really fell for her and, and like her performance in episode one was just completely God. stellar. And also when they're showing the flashbacks of the party and, and like how dynamically like upbeat she was, that really yeah. made the previous acting that we've seen of her like even stand out more, I think. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. I forgot how brutal the first 20 to 30 minutes of the first episode was of series three. The whole intake process. Yeah, they take you through the whole thing it was so interesting it was heartbreaking i mean to see all the bruises as someone who watches a lot of at least back in the day a lot of law and order sau it's kind of like glossed over in a way not only do you survive the first trauma of having that done to you then you go through another trauma right after to collect evidence even though like you had hardy and miller trying to be as gentle as possible trying to get I trish through them trying to collect the evidence it's still traumatizing because it is demoralizing because they're pretty much in a sense stripping away her identity and putting her into this gown and it's also very evasive too in order to collect the evidence and i wish american television is more in depth about it because it seems like oh a slight little collection evidence here we're here i feel like it's the first time we understand what that means when they're collecting evidence and how traumatic of experience that is for someone i just thought right away of how i mean this may be a glorification of how it's done in the uk but i doubt it but like everything about that just seems so much more kind loving respectful and trying to maintain as much dignity for the victim as possible that i doubt is the case here it's supposed to be it depends on the person doing the intake of the individual from what i understand is they're supposed to go through specific training to sort of ease the individual um, when they're doing evidence collection are they that careful or compassionate thank you compassionate with the individual i highly doubt it all depends on the detectives involved and the medical staff but that's the case here like in the uk like teaching psych and law to students i have like i use an international textbook for english language countries Mm -hmm. so they have to like really delineate when they're talking specifically only about the u.s versus like uk Mm -hmm. 
Australia. And there's some just glaring, glaring, huge differences in the kind of things like cognivists, including myself, we all say it is very important to hold a cognitive interview, which, you know, very specific steps, no leading questions, always mm-hmm. recording audio and video, all these kind of things that like cops are like suggested right here, but no one ever fucking does. But it is so mandatory in the UK. And also they can't lie. The US cops can lie to anyone. Yeah. So the one thing I really liked about David Tennant's character was that he didn't lie to anyone. He just set up situations where they would hang themselves with lying. That is real detective work to me. Like, you know, it's not how much of a detective are you if you're saying, oh, your buddy's in the other room. He just admitted to it. We have your DNA. You're going to go to prison probably for life if you don't cooperate. Cops can legally say that in the US. Yeah, but, which leads to horrible, messy trials. You're cursing a uh, confession. The biggest reasons for those false confessions come up for sure. Mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to mention is you guys probably really like Trish, the actor, Julie Hesmanhoff. She was in Happy Valley, that other very short British series that I was telling you about, David. And she was in Catastrophe. She was in the last season of Catastrophe. I know oh, was she? We yeah. covered it on the show. Yep. Uh, yeah. that's, why, that's why I brought that one up. I'd recognize her from a few things, but I couldn't pin it down. I had to you know, use IMDb. But Okay, I'll have to look up and see who she was in Catastrophe. Let's go ahead and move on. Let's say someone doesn't want to commit to the entire series. Do you have a recommended viewing order to help with the experience, Jamie? I honestly do think you have to start at the beginning. I just think it would be very confusing if you started anywhere else. Sure. What about finishing the series? Do you feel like you could stop at season two and and be totally Uh, satisfied? I don't know. Season three really was different and it went down a different path. It wrapped up a lot for Mark. It wrapped up a lot for Beth. It wrapped up a ton for Ellie and, and Alec. All four main characters really needed something to be wrapped up with. But for the rest of the story plot, I don't think Series 3 was very necessary. But Mm -hmm. I'm really glad they did it because I'd like to see how some of the things happen, especially between Mark and Joe's characters. What do you think, Romeo? They give you a definite endpoint at the end of Series 1. So if you're only interested in just that first mystery, you can end with Series 1. And I'm thinking, can you skip Season 2? two and go to three they do kind of do a lot of the backstory and sort of explain how those relationships got mended and there's enough context to see like how joe miller got away with murder where if you're like going like two episodes in a season two and i did struggle with that when i originally watched it but i kept going because i love the characters so much i think there's enough context clues where you might be able to skip season two if you didn't like it as much i did not expect that perspective that's that's interesting because i think with this show they're like individual novels where a lot of it is self-contained with the exception of season two where you can just watch them on their own granted do you miss a lot of character growth yes but in terms of the individual mysteries that are central to those series i think there's enough for series one and three where you can get away by watching them on their own series two was hard because there's a lot of jumping back and reflecting on the events of season one where you just can't skip season one. Do you need other material to enrich the show's viewing experience?
sense, the only thing I could recommend is that David Tennant does a podcast with, he did his first episode with Olivia Coleman and the third episode with Jodie Whittaker. So they touch on Broadchurch, but it's more about just like who Olivia and Jodie are as like actresses and people. And, you know, David Tennant is just a delight in general. So he's really good, just kind of a natural person to interview people and colleagues. So I recommend those two episodes if you want to learn more about the actors and listen to a podcast if you like listening to a podcast. David Tennant does a podcast with. Well, here, here's a good question. Do we want to see a reboot or a continuation series? We know Grace Point exists. We know that French one exists. Malaterra, I couldn't find it anywhere. I try to like find it on YouTube. I, I couldn't mm. find anything on it, so I can't give any opinion on that. Grace Point, mixed re- reception, gave her a different ending. I know Romeo, we talked about it before the air, uh, you didn't like it. I guess just to not really focus on a reboot, more so on the continuation, like if David Tennant and Olivia Coleman and Jodie Whittaker, some were saying, hey, we're coming back. We're going to do more Broadchurch. Jamie, do you want to see that? I wouldn't call for it, but I'd definitely watch it. I mean, they're all just three outstanding actors and i like the show enough i think it could potentially like harm like the integrity of the show kind of if you did that but i would be about it just because i love them i guess for me it's like i guess if chibnall has a good idea then maybe i'd be more inclined to be interested in in something like that i don't know what do you think romeo has to be a solely contained case if the crime happens in town or village of Broadchurch, there will be some clever ways to bring in some of the characters in but it'll be kind of hard to be like oh he might be guilty again did he not learn but it has to be just solely them too let's go ahead and start making some suggestions for similar shows and franchises that viewers might also enjoy jamie i'll let you start things out i got lots of them you know this is so easy right i felt like this was the easy one of the easier shows to make recommendations for the first one i would i already already mentioned line of duty that's probably i would say the wire bosch then line of duty are the three best police procedural tv shows ever line of duty is so good and you follow like what is their internal affairs version in in london so they're like they're after bent coppers the whole time each series of it has a new bad bent cop that they're investigating and they all tend to be very very famous actors lenny james does the first series which was amazing everything about that show is just outstanding <laughs> it's just so good uh you'll see people from broad church in it too um, oh, nice. the other one is happy valley and now i can say that put my name in the hat for that as well because out of nowhere they just put out another third series and I believe Sarah Lancashire the lead I believe I remember reading her saying that that's going to be it for her anything she's in is worth watching she's in this kind of romantic slash dramedy called The Last Tango in Halifax it also stars Nicola Walker who is in Unforgotten she's in like five or six police procedurals that are British one of my very favorite shows ever is The Fall I hope you guys would do that with me three very short seasons are you familiar with The Fall yes with Gillian Anderson yeah yeah and, uh, Jimmy Dornan. I didn't really know him from anything else, but he was outrageously good in that series. The one I would say is The Killing, and that's the U.S. version. Joel Kinnaman gives an amazing performance. Luther is another very obvious choice. Luther, I think, is a really good comparison to this. It's a little bit like edgier and darker, but it is still like 
just teetering with being cheesy. You know what I mean? Just enough cheese. And then a couple last ones would be The Missing, which I would only recommend probably the first series. The second one kind of gets a little weird. And then I've only seen a handful of episodes. I liked it, just never got back to it. But Marcella on Netflix was another one I was thinking. Yeah, a lot of those recommendations you made, I did see (laughs) while searching for recommendations that we would make ourselves. So let's go ahead and do the couple that we have here. Criminal UK, actually an episode of the show. It's their first episode. It's called Edgar. And it's as time runs out, interrogators turn up the heat on a stone-faced doctor who's played by David Tennant, suspected of sexually assaulting and slaying his teenage stepdaughter. So if you want to see what David Tennant is like on the other side of the table in an interrogation scene, that is an episode that I will recommend. I have seen it and he is good in it. For a while there, he's just saying no comment. And I'm just thinking like, this is David Tennant. You're not just going to go a whole episode here with him just saying no comment right and eventually he does open up a little bit more he's just really good in the episode one other series i haven't watched i think it was either four or five episode miniseries on acorn david Tennant was a cop Deadwater fell. I have not seen it, but it looks great. And he's like the only survival of, of a brutal crime. Like I'm interested in seeing him as like the victim. You know, we see him as the bad guy in Jessica Jones. That's probably the last leaf I have to turn over for like understanding David Tennant, his scope of acting. Set in Scotland, if I'm not mistaken. It too. Is. Yeah, so that's kind of cool. Speaking of Scotland, there's a show called Karen Peary. I think that's how you pronounce the last name there. It's about after the promotion to police Scotland's historic case unit, Karen Peary reopens a cold case of a murdered barmaid. Her investigation unearths flaws in the original 1995 inquiry. Series one is based on the first novel, The Distant Echo. And I think series one just had three episodes, but it sounded interesting. I, I read this premise and I thought this sounds like a character reading up on the character. She sounds like a little bit of uh, Hardy. So I thought that would be a good recommendation to make. Here's a Scottish detective who may remind me of Alec Hardy and it's a brand new show. So people might be interested interested in checking it out. But of course, it being a UK show is not exactly the most easily accessible for American audiences. So I I don't really know how you watch it, to be honest. I didn't quite look that part up. Interesting show. You know, I just wanted to make sure I wanted to include something that was like brand new. And there's one that's ongoing still that seems to be on the forefront of a lot of recommendation lists when it comes to Broadchurch. And that is Shetland. It's about a D.I. Jimmy Perez, who is native to Shetland. He has has returned to the islands with a desire to protect the from, yeah, thank you from inevitable change. Together with his trusted colleagues, Perez works on a number of challenging cases, including one which involves the remains of a missing person who are found at various locations along the beachfronts. During this murder case, Perez and the team work together in order to comprehend the horror of the scene and track down the culprit who is nowhere to be found. So just on that basis alone, that sounds very interesting. And it's been on for a few seasons now. From what I could tell, it seems to be a pretty popular show, but it's one of those that hasn't really like made its way to the States in terms of popularity. Paradox is where you have to go for that, I believe. Yeah. But with all that being said, Jamie, we did it. We talked about Broadchurch. And once again, always amazing and fun to have you mm-hmm. on the show. I, this is the first time you were on this year, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, you're right. It is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You were on twice last year, and, and this is the first time for you this year. 
But considering where the show has to go right now, we might see you again before the year is done. So, hey, <laughs> you know, I'm all about that, if yeah, especially if it's going to be British stuff. But yeah. if I had to like push one on you both, it would be Happy Valley. I'm definitely open to Happy Valley because it, it, you're right. It does sound like the series is done. And yeah, yeah, we'll definitely have to make something happen because it sure as hell doesn't seem like the strike is ending anytime no. soon. <laughs> so. <laughs> Anywhere inside, yeah. Listeners, stay tuned for our final thoughts and mailbag. Welcome back. So we did yeah. Broadchurch for release of this month. Originally yes. in August, we were going to do Teenage Mutant Ninja, Ninja Turtles, Turtles film trilogy from the 90s. We were supposed to do X-Men, but X-Men got pushed. We were supposed to do X-Men next, but didn't work out. There's just so much going on, you know, right now with the strikes. And we had to change gears a bit. Doing Broadchurch was one of those changes. And fortunately, Jamie was on board to do it. It's not a huge undertaking like we talked about in the episode with it only being about 24 episodes. Really quick binge and a really enjoyable show. I mean, once you start watching, you get kind of hooked. It was fun having Jamie back. First time he's been back this year. Might not be the last time we see him again in 2023. But for the meantime, yeah, it was great to have him. Broadchurch, really, really good show. Enjoy talking about it. Might not be the last British show we do this year. Broadchurch kind of reaches a more wider audience. I feel like anyone from their 20s can enjoy this show all the way to their 50s and 60s. Like, I really feel like this is the type of show that encompasses adult age ranges and genders. So, it's, yeah, it's a special show. It's a really good show. We got a couple things to touch on that we wanted just to clean up from the original recording. There were a series arc in Law and Order involving Jeffrey Epstein, or at least Jeffrey S being inspired. So it was Law and Order Special Victims Unit and the two episodes that Romeo was referring to were called Can't Be Held Accountable and Must Be Held Accountable. Those were in season 21, episodes 9 and 10. So the other thing worth noting is that we weren't quite sure about Susan Wright's backstory. We knew there was a murder involved, but we didn't remember the whole scope of it. So she had remained oblivious to the fact that her oldest daughter was being sexually abused by her husband and later killed and got blame because of it during the resulting investigation. I knew it involved her husband and I just could not remember anything beyond that because it was one of those things where it was like, oh, I found the newspaper article about it and they flash it really quick and they don't actually explain it. You know, it's like one of those like pause and read, read the headline right. moments. I can remember. None of us quite remembered it. So just wanted to get that cleared up. That was her backstory. But yeah, that's it. It's time to move on from Broadchurch and talk about what we got going on here. So, yeah, like I mentioned earlier, we had to do some changes to our schedule. So before we get into what we're going to do for next month, which is for our October release, which is usually our spooky time of year, I want to let you guys know that you can always find us at bingeessentials at gmail.com. Email us with any questions or comments or suggestions that we that you have in mind for the show for the rest of the year. You can find us also on Facebook at Binge Essentials and at Instagram at Binge Essentials. You can find me on Instagram at David Rocha Binge. You can find Romeo at Armora02. You will not find me on X. I deleted my X. Well, actually, I take that back. I deleted the app. I, my account is still there. You can find me at David Rocha Radio. Romeo, do you still have your X account? <laughs> I do. And I'm just like, I don't think I've reached my breaking point yet. I think once he starts like, hey, upload your ID, that's when I'm like, okay, tapped out. Well, until then, Literally. you can find Romeo there at Armora1. All right, so time to tease next month 
month's episode. Mm-hmm. Next month's episode is Juon Origins. What is Juon Origins? Well, if you're not familiar with that name, you might be familiar with the name The Grudge, the American film series that came out in the mid 2000s. Well, that was based on Juon, which was a couple films from Japan that were well renowned. And in 2020, they came out with a mini series called Juon Origins, which was a six episode mini series. I mean, me and Romeo have been racking our brains. What are we going to do for October? What's going to fit our criteria? It was a really difficult back and forth for us. We had two ideas, both of them. One we felt like wasn't popular enough. Another we felt like maybe time constraints. It wasn't going to quite work out for us. So I brought up Juon and Romeo said, hey, if it's short and if it's good, you know, let's do it. And as far as I can tell, it is short. Is it good? Well, that is yet to be determined by me and Romeo. Reviews are positive for the series. Yeah, and I'm going in not watching any of the films. Not even the American versions. Same here. I haven't seen the Japanese films. I haven't seen the American remakes. I'm really interested to see how they go about this. And it's called Origins. So we're getting an origin story because this this miniseries is tied in with the film franchise. Pretty exciting. I'm I'm, I'm looking forward to the discussion. And, And again, it's not ideal. I mean, we had other plans in mind earlier in the year, a recording that we actually will still do, (laughs) but we're just not going to have the release of that episode for some time, which is a shame, but it just is what it is. We have no guest planned. That could change, but I don't think so. I think it's just going to be me and Romeo. So yeah, look forward to that at the start of October. All right. So with all that being said, when you thank you guys for listening, catch you guys next month.